Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Jeff, and along with Brian, we are the hosts of this program. Hello, and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast. So happy to have you along. You have Brian and Jeff with you. Today we're going to be talking about questions about the church. And you know, Jeff, you administer, of course, the questions that people submit to our website. And in the past, you and I have done some podcasts around popular questions that people have submitted. And this is one of those subjects about the church that's also fairly popular, right? We get a lot of questions that kind of cover a broad spectrum about the church. We do. And there's a lot of, uh, I'll say, diversity of views out there. Uh, th that's putting it nicely. Uh, let's just say there's a lot of conflicting doctrines, you know, regarding the church, you know, what it is, what does it consist of, who's it consists of, it, you know, it, its work, its mission, you know, is it something I need to attend, you know, just all kinds of interesting uh, differences of interpretation, differences of opinion, uh, and unfortunately, as I said, kind of a false doctrine embedded with it. Yeah, that is so true. And, you know, because this is one of the more what we might call popular categories of questions or subjects that we receive questions about, we thought it would be good to have a podcast about the church and kind of break it into two categories of questions, if you will. One is, is what we might call more fundamental questions like, hey, what is the church? Or do I have to go to church to be saved? And then in part two, you know, we'll consider some of the more unique or complex questions about the church. So, you know, it's interesting, Jeff, just like the church is made up of members with different levels of maturity, you know, we would acknowledge that our listening audience and those who submit questions to our website are the same. Uh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. We've got... Uh... And you can kind of tell from sometimes the question itself, sometimes the way uh, the topic, sometimes it's it's the way it's phrased. That that yes, indeed, there's some people out there that are, uh, you know, relatively young or new to you know Christianity uh, or to the faith, and there's others that you know kind of give us some really highly detailed technical, you know, Greek-based questions that you can tell they they've you know have really dug into it. So definitely a lot of diversity from that perspective as well. Yeah, and I think it's important for us to recognize that because you know it's interesting sometimes if you hear a sermon and it sounds very basic, or we go through questions and it's like, well, everybody should know that. And we just want everybody to understand that, you know, we're dealing with an audience that comes from a variety of backgrounds as well. So, for instance, there are listeners who are in denominations today, and they're starting to find differences or based on what they're hearing and studying, they see some differences in what they're being taught compared to what the Bible teaches. We also have some, maybe they're mature Christians, part of the Lord's Church, they have a really good understanding of the Bible, and for them, they would like to be reminded of important truths, as Peter talked about in his writings. But also, you know, they're teaching others, hey, I'd like to have some, some material, if you will, or some passages that I can share. So it's interesting how we all kind of come to a study with different mindset, different levels of maturity. And that's really, I think, the beauty of the gospel. It's beneficial to all. It has something for all of us. So... Why don't we start with some fundamental questions, as we talked about, that are frequently submitted to our website. And, you know, normally when Jeff and I do Q&A, if you will, we like to give credit, if you will, to the person that submitted the question. 
In this episode, we're not going to mention any specific names because, once again, these are questions that are commonly submitted or very popular, you know, and submitted often. And so, you know, we're just going to tell you what the question is and we're going to answer it from God's word. So before we go to that first question, Jeff, any other thoughts that you have? No, let's just get into it. All right. So fundamental question number one, what is the church? <laughs> That's probably a really good place to start. Well, and actually, in at the very least, it illustrates, I think, a, a common misconception that people have. I mean, for example, uh, whenever you hear the word church or someone uses the word church, often they're referring to the building, right? You know, we have a beautiful church. You know, uh, our church is located here. You know, we are going to church, you know, in, in the sense of a, a physical structure. But, and the other thing I might mention is when you say church, a lot of people think, oh, you mean like the Baptist church or the Methodist church or the Catholic church, you know, a particular religious denomination. But when we go into the scriptures, you know, the term church uh, is basically, you know, comes from a Greek word, ekklesia, that basically means a gathering of citizens, this is according to one dictionary I found, a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place, an assembly. And the interesting thing, so number one, it's not a building, right? It's people, okay? Number two, it's a term that's not restricted to what we would call the uh, Christians. Uh, for example, Acts chapter 7, verse 33 church is used to refer to the assembly of the Israelites in the wilderness. Acts 19 verse 32, it's used for a public assembly of the citizens of Ephesus uh, during a riot, of all things. Now, certainly, yes, it is used to refer to local assemblies of Christians within a particular area, uh, which is probably a very common usage in the New Testament. Acts 9.31, 14, verse 23, Acts 15, verse 41, uh, Romans 16, 16, the churches of Christ. Multiplicity of assemblies, local assemblies, church in Ephesus, Thessalonica, etc. And yet there's one other use, singular use of church, basically referring to all of the saved. Uh, different passages use it as an, uh, use the word church, as an assembly, other passages refer to it as a body, uh, with that kind of a metaphor, you know, Jesus' body with Christ as its head. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, again, singular use of the word church. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28, Ephesians 1, verse 22. So when it's all said and done, church, uh, it is a you know, group of people, all of the saved, you know, all of the saved of all time, <laughs> right? Uh, or it's, uh, you know, faithful Christians within a local congregation in a particular area. Never used for referring to a physical structure building. Never used for a particular religious sect or denomination. There you go, Brian. How's that? Yeah, good. And in fact, I appreciate you drawing that distinction between the building and I guess what we might say the body of brethren, if you will, that meet. And, you know, as we go along through these questions, what our listeners will see is that we're also going to get into detail about what does the church do, you know, and, and as you mentioned, at a real basic level, you know, a, a collection of saints, 
that have decided to establish or worship together in a local place, a local city or town, to really carry out the work that God wants them to do. So, yeah, we'll get more into that as we go along. Gotcha. Okay. So, and I used the term a few moments ago. Sometimes we use it accommodatively, you know, going to church, you know, going to assembly, going to a worship service, going to meet, going to the assembly. <laughs> um, so question, Brian, for you is why? Why go to, quote unquote, why go go to church? Or, you know, why go to some sort of formal assembly worship service on Sunday? Yeah, another, this is a good question because everybody should know the answer to this. And as Jeff mentioned, you know, using this phrase, quote unquote, go to church. Yes, uh, we're, we're talking about meeting with other Christians in a formal worship service. Now, the Bible does teach us that we are to assemble with other Christians on the first day of the week, Sunday, to remember the death of Jesus by partaking of the Lord's Supper, and to perform often what we refer to as the five acts of worship. And so, just like with any other Bible subject, how do we come to this conclusion? Well, we go to the Bible to see what it teaches us about worship. And we've had podcasts about this. We'll reference those at the end. But Let's just look at a few passages that kind of help us understand these acts of worship. First, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, we learn about the Lord's Supper and preaching taking place when disciples came together. So Acts 20 verse 7, now on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread. So we see that's one of the purposes or reasons that they came together. In fact, we could say it's the primary purpose to remember the Lord's death. That passage then goes on to say, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So we see there the Lord's Supper and preaching is referenced. Over in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, which is referenced as that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So you can read about how Jesus instituted that memorial, we call it the Lord's Supper before he died, and it was his intention, as he says there to his uh, disciples, that they remember his death until he comes again. And so, you know, this is something that Jesus wanted done. Now, if you go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's dealing with a situation where when they came together as a church, they were not properly partaking of the Lord's Supper, but we can learn from that that they came together as a church, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18. And then in verse 26, he talks about when they eat this bread and drink this cup. So he's referencing, once again, them as that when they come together as a church, they're partaking of that memorial. And then he also mentions in that same verse that they, when they do so, when they partake of the Lord's Supper, they are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And then finally, in that, that chapter, he talks about eating the Lord's Supper in a quote-unquote worthy manner. And you can read verses 27 to 30 to get more information about what it means to partake of it in a worthy manner. So we can clearly see, partake of the Lord's Supper, we see preaching took place. We also see that worship includes singing spiritual songs. So Ephesians 5.19 says, Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So that occurs. We also see about praying. So going back to Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, we're told here, and they, the Christians, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So we see that they prayed. Of course, I don't think any of us would be shocked to say, hey, if you come together as a church, 
a good idea to pray, right? But we have that specific passage that talks about that. And then we also see authority, if you will, the practice of contributing into the local treasury. And that's another one we've had podcasts on that we'll reference at the end. And that just talks about this is how we fund what the church does. So when you think about the work of the church, paying an evangelist to preach, providing benevolence for those needy saints, as the scriptures call it, uh, that might need assistance, and then edification, the building up of the body. Those are authorized activities. So 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, this is Paul speaking, so you must do also on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So these are the five acts of worship that we see authorized in the New Testament. So when we go back to this idea of going to church, it's to worship our God, to remember his son's death, and to you know participate or practice these other elements of worship that we just discussed. Now, the other thing the scripture teaches us, or the past, the Bible, I guess I should say, teaches us is that we are to encourage or exhort our brethren to stir up love and good works. And as a result, we are told not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So you can read about that in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. This is why you would not want to miss church. And we'll talk more about that in another question. So when you think about what are some of the benefits? Well, we're encouraged, we're uplifted, we're edified, built up through these acts of worship. We also learn and are reminded of the truth through preaching and singing. So passages like 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, preach the word. Paul told Timothy, convince, rebuke, exhort with teaching. So that's what happens when you have preaching and singing. In fact, Colossians 3.16 talks about that, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So that's what occurs when we worship. And then the last thing I'll mention, and then I'll turn it over to you, Jeff, is that you know it's also common, though not necessarily required, to have a period of Bible study around the time of worship. Now, most churches do this because it's just convenient. You know, hey, we're already coming together to worship. Why not carve out, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes prior to the worship? Could be in the middle of the worship, whatever, to just study the Bible and learn more about it. So, you know, that Bible study can be helpful for our spiritual growth. It helps to promote unity around the truth. And so once again, just wanted to mention that, not something the Bible says we must do, but it's just something that's not uncommon for churches to practice. Jeff? Yeah, really good point. I think it points out, uh, you know, God's wisdom in saying, hey, uh, it, it makes good sense for Christians to come together on a regular basis and, and you know, and, and this goes sound a little odd, but not only to worship God together, but also to kind of bond together, you know, as a local congregation, as like a family uh, for, you know, mutual encouragement, uh, mutual uh, education, if you will. And even if uh, I said mutual correction, uh, if some people start to get, you know, you know, false doctrine or start to live in the wrong way, there's a, there's like mutual accountability, you know, helping one another, uh, you know, get to heaven. So, yeah, you know, cert- certainly a massive amount of, uh, of wisdom there in, in having people come together on a regular basis. Absolutely is. All right. Next question for you, Jeff. Do I have to go to church to be saved? Right. And so when, when you asked me for my comments on the previous question, 
you know, I phrase it in terms of, hey, this is smart. There is wisdom here. This is something we should do, etc. I love this question. You know, do I have to go? And really, the answer is yes. And, and I, in in some ways, I I don't like the way the question's phrased. Do I have? To? Yeah, it's like you're taking me kicking and screaming, right? <laughs> anyway, well, exactly. I mean, do I? I was a little kid, right? Do I have to? You gonna make me, etc. Which uh, in and of itself is a bad attitude, of course. Uh, but you know, is attendance a command? And I think Brian, as you were pointing out uh, a few moments ago, yes, it is a command. It is something Christians are supposed to do, expected to do, commanded to do. And when they do not, that is sin. Okay? Uh, you know, being an, you know, sometimes if we get questions like, you know, I'm a good Christian or I'm spiritual, but uh, I never go to church. You know, I read my Bible, I pray, but I never go to church. It's like, well, you need to repent because you're in sin. And, and now, why would I say that? Well, as Brian said earlier to our listeners, uh, you know, there are a number of things that Christians are commanded to do that can only be done in a group setting singing he mentioned you know singing one to another can only be done in a group setting ephesians 5 19 colossians 3 16 things like the uh you know praying in a group setting acts 2 42 um the lord's supper you know at you know when you come together you know can i do the lord's supper at home by myself well technically physically yes you could but that is not the intention. You know, the intention is to assemble together. Acts twenty verse seven, and as Brian mentioned, you know, First Corinthians eleven. Uh, you know, setting aside into the uh, local congregation's treasury, the collection. You know, that is a that is a group thing. First uh, Corinthians sixteen uh, one and two, uh, teaching one another. You know, Acts twenty verse seven, Second Timothy four, verses one through six. So, you know, bottom line is a person who you know, claims to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, a member of his body as a whole, uh, who is not associating in a, you know, with a local congregation with fellow Christians, uh, basically, unfortunately, is sinning, will be lost if they do not repent. Now, of course, Brian, that assumes that, <laughs> this is interesting, can, you know, must I go to church? Yes. Okay. Can I go to any church? No. <laughs> uh, it assumes that the local congregation that you go to is indeed part of the quote-unquote Lord's Church, uh, just not any particular denomination, that it indeed is worshiping and teaching the things it should uh, should be doing, you know, based on the uh, New Testament pattern, etc. And and we'll we'll explore more about that in a in a future question, subsequent question, Brian. Yeah, so these last couple of questions, hopefully our listeners understand, we're talking about the collective action of a local group of Christians or saints that meet together. And I appreciate your point about attitude, Jeff, because those who love the Lord and those who have attended many worship services understand that it's very uplifting. And it's something we look forward to. I would say if somebody, and you kind of hinted at this, Jeff, but if somebody is asking, do I have to go, that might point to what we call a heart problem Indeed. and they're not getting the benefit or maybe they're not edifying others and or building up and encouraging others. And so 
Yeah, I would just say, boy, if, if that's how you feel, please look into the source of that because you're really defeating the purpose, I think, of coming together. Well, and just to add a, a slight amount to that, you know, in a lot of religious groups today, unfortunately, it seems to be all about the person and the, the experience that the person has and what the person's getting out of it. And Oh, it was such an uplifting thing. I feel so good. Or... Oh, you know, they, they just kind of, you know, droned on and on and talked about the Bible and things we were supposed to do and not supposed to do and, and all this talk about sin and going to hell. And, you know, I'm just not getting anything out of it. It's, you know, it's, it's all about me, right? Right. And I'm not having fun. Again, an attitudinal issue. Yeah, and we've had a previous podcast about worship and comparing denominations, for instance, to the Lord's Church. And to your point... A lot of worship services are centered around making somebody feel great. And I think that's also a challenge when people come out of denominations is if they're attending a worship service where there's bands and, you know, it's very charismatic, as we might say, and then they come to a Church of Christ worship based on what the Bible teaches. They don't, you know, instruments aren't used. There's not all of that emotional, you know, like on emotions on steroids then it can seem very dull because they're coming out of an environment where there's like a concert every week and they're just sitting and we're just doing what the Bible teaches. And it's a very, I don't want to say simple worship, but it's certainly not, you know, once again, this charismatic worship. And and so therefore it can be difficult. Boring. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Indeed. All right. Next question. Um, and I'm going to phrase it slightly differently. And it's kind of related to the organizational structure of the church and the leadership of the church. And the reason why I say that is, you know, different congregations have different terms for their leaders. The question itself, which I know, Brian, you'll expand on, what is the role of elders in the church? Yeah, and it's... Like you say, there's there's church leadership, and as we just read the scriptures, if anybody, if, if nobody mentioned to you what the Bible teaches about the church, and you were just to read from Matthew to re through Revelation, you would see these references to elders. Depending on the translation that you use, you might see overseer, shepherd, these different terms that describe the structure of a church, and it's another one we've had a couple, like a two-part series on the organization of the church. And that is elders. What do they do? Why do they exist? Well, one thing that we see when we read our Bibles is, for instance, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2, that the work of elders is to shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers. Well, what's the flock of God? Well, that's that body of brethren or Christians that meet together. And so in you know this section and in others, as you dig into the scriptures, what you see is that the elders have many responsibilities, and I'll just list a few here. One is making sure the truth of God's word is taught and adhered to, Titus chapter 1 verse 9, to ensure that false teachers do not come into the church, Acts chapter 20, 28 through 31. In that section, you'll see where Paul called and spoke to the elders at Ephesus and said, you know, be careful. You're going to have some even rise up among your own church that will lead people astray if you allow them. So as elders, you know, he's telling them and teaching them, you have a responsibility to make sure that these false teachers aren't coming in, bringing in doctrines that are contrary to God's will, and once again, leading away some of the flock, if you will. 
uh, making sure members are faithful. And that might sound strange to some. You mean somebody's making sure I'm faithful? Yeah, I mean, if you are, you know, an alcoholic or you're, you're a fornicator or something like that, and the elders are aware of that, well, they have to keep the church pure. Or if you're just not coming and worshiping ever, you know, or once in a, a month or something, well, they have a responsibility to say, here's what the word teaches. And so, and I think sometimes people get a little squeamish, Jeff, when there's, you know, somebody's telling them, hey, you, you need to do X. Well, that's what God gave the elders to do. They also are, are responsible for making sure the evangelist, who may or may not be an elder himself, but it's not the same role as an elder. So the evangelist is accountable, if you will, to the elders to make sure that they are preaching the truth, that they're performing the work that God expects them to perform. Uh, and as a result, this is part of them, quote unquote, watching out for our souls, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7. And so ultimately, you know, when it comes to the hierarchy of authority, if you will, the elders themselves are to be in subjection to Christ, who has authority over the church. So there's nobody above an elder. There's not bishops or the Pope, like the Catholic Church, but the passages like Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, make it clear that Christ is the head of the church. The elders are under the head, Christ, and then all of the members in that congregation are under the oversight of elders. Now, for someone to be an elder, and we'll talk a little bit about this more in another question, but they must meet the qualifications outlined in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. There also must be more than one elder to oversee a congregation. And I mention this because, you know, many religious bodies today have a position of pastor, which is usually one man who oversees the entire church. That structure is not authorized in Scripture, as there must be multiple men, elders, a plurality, who oversee the church. So, for instance, a couple scriptural passages that talk about this, you know, Titus was commanded by the Apostle Paul to, quote, appoint elders in every city, Titus 1.5. We're told that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every church when they were in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. In fact, notice what's said in Ephesians 4.11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So that word pastor here is referring to an elder, to an overseer. So each of these, you know, uh, the, that we just mentioned in Ephesians 4, evangelists, pastors, teachers, serve distinct roles for the Lord instead of one man who performs all of these key functions. So anyhow, to wrap this up, elders have a vital role in the church to help the congregation to grow, to remain faithful, and do the work that God has given the church to do. Jeff? Yeah, good point. And I think a, a fair number of uh, what I would call Protestant uh, denominations, you know, as you indicated, yeah, they've got one person in charge. They're often referred to as the pastor. And basically, they're in many ways the preacher, right? Do they meet the qualifications according to the verses you pointed out? No. And so we got, you know, several aspects, so to speak, in terms of the organizational structure that a lot of denominations, you know, fail to realize that have been specified within the scriptures. That's right. In fact, if you study some of those institutions, really is what they are. They'll have all kinds of, you know, faith ministers, prison ministries, women's ministers, you know, they have a numerous roles sometimes that they appoint that you'll never find in the Bible. So then we have to go back to say, well, is it authorized? Well, if it's not in the Bible, the answer is no, it's not authorized. We don't have the latitude to create new positions that the Bible hasn't created or doesn't, you know, talk about. So, yeah. Right. 
Exactly. And I think even in a few, I think, you know, rarer, uh, rarer um, examples or rarer uh, religious groups, you know, you may even see things that start to mirror the government. Like we have a president and a vice president and, a, you know, et cetera. And, you know, terminology that's foreign to the scriptures. So, yes, uh, you know, Christ church, you know, Christ does want his you know, local congregations to be structured in certain ways when when there are, you know, qualified individuals present to fulfill those roles. That's it, exactly. All right, Jeff, so the next question, what is the role of deacons in the church? Right. And, you know, here again, here's another, you know, word, if you will, uh, that is used in reference to a role or an office, if you will, you know, within the local congregation. Uh, the, you know, underlying, you know, Greek word for that, for deacon, which is kind of a weird to our, you know, vocabulary, but the underlying Greek word basically is someone who serves. Someone who serves or ministers to or helps others. A lot of different uses within the New Testament. There's angels who helped, you know, Jesus after his temptation, you know, in terms of servants. Uh, you know, uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 11. Uh, there are women who financially helped Jesus, Luke, you know, 8, etc. Uh, and in some ways, there's a lot of different serving, if you will, uh, references in the, in the New Testament. But in the context of the local congregation... They are men, once again, who meet certain qualifications per 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. And admittedly, some scholars will see a parallel in terms of you know, serving, a parallel between their function and those mentioned in Acts 5, which if true, then Acts 5 would be the first, even though the word deacon is not used there, uh, would be the first occurrence of you know men being selected to perform certain uh, roles of you know, service, ministering, helping uh, others. Now, again, this this group of men, deacons, if you will, um, is you know in contrast to, as Brian was saying earlier, elders. Uh, but they also have qualifications. You know, First Timothy three, Titus one, qualifications. You know, basically are somewhat similar. And as you know, Brian was mentioned earlier. You know, the deacons kind of stand in contrast to the elders which, depending on your translation, can be elders, bishops, overseers, pastors, shepherds, right? You know, they've got the overall oversight of the local congregation. Deacons seem, in contrast, to be more of a supportive role, you know, serving the needs of the congregation. One thing I might mention, if I remember correctly, some Baptist churches uh, either invert that hierarchy or they don't have elders. They have deacons. Deacons are the leaders of the congregation, you know, spiritual leaders and, you know, supportive, uh, you know, ministering uh, leaders as well. And again, try to use, you know, Bible names for Bible things, speak in Bible terms, you know, model our, you know, local congregation's governance structure, you know, over, uh, based on the scriptures. Right? Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, so these last two questions are what the Bible teaches about the organization or the leadership, I should say, of the church. And, to your point about denominations or, you know, take the Catholic Church where they have a priest, which is in essence, in some ways, like an evangelist, but they sort of tie it back to the old law where you had a physical priest. Well, First Peter 2 says that all Christians are priests. Then they have the role of a bishop, which isn't like what we're talking about, even though that term is used in scriptures. The term bishop is the same as overseer, pastor, elder. And that that's the leaders we talked about in the previous question. And above that, they'll have cardinals all the way up until the Pope. Well, you don't see anything about cardinals. You don't see anything about the Pope in the scriptures. So 
just emphasizing that to say we can only use the scriptures to determine what the leadership of the church should look like. And it becomes pretty clear when you compare the scriptures to what you see in these other institutions that they've created a lot of roles that the Bible never authorizes. Yeah, it's certainly true. Uh, and you know, there's another point I'll make that we just sort of like you know, went right on past and, and didn't highlight it. Uh, there are a lot of religious groups today that are starting to, and this is, this is controversial, which I want to say, I'll go ahead and say it anyway. A lot of religious groups that are putting women, you know, into positions of leadership. Well, again, if you look at the qualifications, First Timothy 3, Titus 1, one of the things that uh, is required to be qualified as a, an elder, pastor, you know, bishop, etc., is to be a man. And to be a buried man. Not a wim- not women, not females. And a lot of people get upset with that. But again, if we're going to follow the New Testament pattern, you know, we'll respect what the, you know, what has been revealed through the scriptures. And that is, you know, God wants men to qualified men, of course, to, you know, lead local congregations. Yeah, and just one final thought on that, and it's a good point, because to your point, some women or some people in general might be offended. Why why can't women lead, you know, acts of worship? Well, women serve a very important role, period, with children, but also, you know, like Paul taught Timothy, to have the older women teach the younger women. And so what you will see is, yeah, God has given specific duties to all of us, and for women— they serve a very vital role in helping, once again, younger women, for instance, understand how they should treat their husbands, how they should ha- treat their family. And so, you know, let's not let the world dictate or confuse these roles because they don't think it's quote unquote fair. God created us. He certainly has the right to dictate what we do. And and, and I don't know, dictate might be kind of a strong word, but the truth is he knows what's best for us. So let's listen to him. <laughs> Anyhow. Right. Well, in terms of, you know, know, Jesus, you know, promised to build his church, you know, it it belongs to him. He is the head. If if you're going to do what the head says, great. If you're just going to, you know, randomly go off and do something that that as part of the body, quote unquote, part of a body, you know, randomly that the head is not instructing you to do, you know, in the physical medical world, you know, that person would have a problem, you know, neurological problem when your arm spasms out or or a hand refuses to work, right? That's a serious problem. Well, ditto, likewise, with you know, modern denominationalism. There's a spiritual application there. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, there you go. All right, next question. So, and this, uh, so I'll just read the question, and then Brian, you can respond. Why does the Church of Christ believe that they are the only church or the true church? Yeah, this is kind of a, an accusation that we'll hear from time to time. There's been tracks written on the one true church, you know, and it's written by somebody from the Church of Christ, let's say. So I think it's just so critical for us all to realize that the quote-unquote Church of Christ is simply the name of the Lord's church that we read about in the New Testament. If you go over to Romans chapter 16 and verse 16, it says, the churches of Christ greet you. Now, if we dug into that a little deeper, we'd see, for instance, the church is referred to as the church of God in another passage. But the point here is that it's not that title in and of itself that's critical. It's the fact that it's the Lord's church. And even within that, for a church to claim to be the church of Christ or to have you know, a sign that says church of Christ in front of their building, 
it must be the church that Jesus purchased with his blood, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. And they must only practice what Jesus authorized for his church to practice. So what are some of those things that, that we're talking about? Well, number one, using the Bible as the only source of authority for all religious practices in that church. That church worshiping according to the pattern outlined in the New Testament. That church being scripturally arranged, as we just talked about, with qualified leadership, elders and deacons. That church operates what we might call autonomously, in other words, independently, and not under the influence of a centralized organization. Because as Jeff just pointed out, Christ is the head of the church. And so that's the organization of the church, is Jesus is the head, then there's elders, and there could be deacons. But that church that has the name Church of Christ must operate independently and not have some centralized organization that you see in, in all of these denominations and so forth. You know, we had a podcast series called The Traditions of Men Versus the Word of God. And you can find that on our podcast page or if you're using a podcast player, it's episodes 162 to 166. And we go through this in detail uh, as it relates to the Lord's Church versus several other different types of churches. So there can be churches of Christ who state they are the quote-unquote only true church, but the reality is that it is defined by the Bible, specifically the New Testament that we're accountable by today, and not based on some statement or some sign. So I emphasize that because, once again, you could have somebody that has a Church of Christ sign out front, but yet they're not practicing what the Bible teaches. Maybe they're, they have a food pantry where they're giving out food to the community when the Bible clearly says that we are only to help needy saints and that individually we are to help the world, not the church, you know, stuff like that. So anyhow, Jeff, I'll turn it over to you for anything you'd like to add. Yeah, the only other thing I, I might add is there's a, a common conception that says, yes, Jesus is the head of the church. The church consists of various religious denominations. You know, the Catholics and the Baptists and the Methodists and the Lutherans, etc. But that's that's not that's not New Test that's not according to the New Testament scripture. Uh, that you know basically condemns division. Jesus prayed for unity. Paul, first Corinthians chapter one, you know, condemn division, uh, encouraged, you know, unity, you know, teaching the same thing, uh, saying the same thing, etc. And so this concept of oh, you know, broad concept of Christianity, you know, Jesus' body consisting of multiple denominations. Yeah, we do have some disagreements, but, you know, we're all basically believing in the same key fundamentals, you know, Jesus is Christ, et cetera. You know, that concept uh, is unfortunately foreign to the scriptures. And so you have you know, the one church, yeah, there's like one church, one assembly, one body of Christ consisting of the saved. And then you have that in physical manifestation in local congregations. That should be, you know, teaching the same thing, practicing the same thing, worshiping God in the same way, etc., according to the New Testament pattern. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point, because to the point you're making, you know, the denominations will, will turn to the passage that talks about, I am the vine, when Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Well, there you go. Because there's branches, that means there can be many churches. But what they fail to do is then go over to Ephesians 4, right, as you pointed out, where it says, one Lord, one faith one baptism, one God and Father, and so forth. So there's only one. And 
not only that, but you can conclude that just based on, once again, are they practicing and worshiping in the way that God has authorized? If not, then they can't possibly be practicing what the Lord asked them to practice. So anyhow, we're just asking people, yeah, use that, that the deductive reasoning, as we might call it, right, when you study the scriptures to say, well, they can say vine and branches, but what's the context and what's it really teaching? And oh, by the way, what does Ephesians 4 teach? Things like that. Good point. All right. What's the next question? Next question, what are the reasons someone can be removed from the church? And I guess, Jeff, in the Catholic Church, they'll say, like, well, excommunicated. I don't think we're talking about that, right? But church discipline, I guess, is really what this is about. Indeed, church discipline. Now, you mentioned Catholics have excommunication. I think it's, I can't remember, it's either the Amish or maybe the Quakers that have shunning, you know, concepts similar to discipline, as you said, disciplinary action within the congregation. You know, against those that, you know, refuse to follow the teachings. Now, general, so basically the, the, the answer to the question of what are the reasons why? So, of course, that presumes it's being done, but let's grant that for a moment. Reasons why. Generally speaking, any sin, and that may sound harsh, but any sin that's publicly known and not repented of after some attempt to teach, to counsel, to get them to correct, to rebuke, etc. Any sin can result in what we're referring to as congregational discipline. Now, discipline in the sense of, you know, talking to, trying to counsel, trying to encourage, trying to, you know, rebuke, etc. Up to and including withdrawal is another term some people use. You know, any public sin that the person refuses to repent of. And, of course, lots of examples found in scriptures of what those sins could consist of that would be of a public, publicly knowable nature. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11, you've got, you know, fornication, uh, covetousness, idolater, reveler, drunkard, extortioner, includes those sins against fellow Christians, Matthew 18, 15 through 17, includes those who walk disorderly or refuse to work. Or are gossips and busybodies, uh, 2 Timothy 3, verses 6 through 11. So basically, any public sin that, you know, that is known publicly uh, and refuses to be repented of can ultimately lead to congregational withdrawal if the person doesn't repent. Right? Yeah, that one doesn't need a lot of elaboration, does it? It's pretty straightforward according to the scriptures. It's so uh, very yeah. good. Well, and, and, you know, maybe in some ways we kind of skip past the... Uh, the first step and went on to the second step. You know, the question is like, you know, what are the reasons someone can be? But what we've also seen is, is even prior to that, you know, should a congregation even do that, right? You know, is it up to a local congregation to quote unquote police its members to make sure they are all, at least in a public manner, you know, doing things that they should be doing, you know, staying away from sin, et cetera. And as we've seen from some of these scriptures, the answer is yes. First uh, Corinthians chapter five, you know, good example that people in the congregation that ref, you know, claim to be a disciple of Christ, claim to be following Jesus. If they're not doing that, then it's the congregation's responsibility to try to work with them, try to convince them of the you know error of their ways, if you will, uh, get them to repent of their sin, etc. And I know that concept is foreign to a lot of religious groups. What? You mean my congregation is supposed to, you know, confront me if, if I do something that I shouldn't be doing that they find out about? Well, yeah. 
Um, mm-hmm. Now that said, uh, I don't, I don't, don't think the uh, the scriptures, you know, authorize the congregation to be some sort of spy agency and tapping your phone or some other extreme measure to pry into your personal life on a you know ongoing basis you know like the gestapo or the you know some sort of communist state but if it does become publicly known then they need to deal with it true very true all right on to the next question brian can anyone establish his or her own church so i guess the short answer is no we do not have the authority to establish our own church now this i guess depends on what you mean by that question so for instance if you're saying can I start a local congregation of the Lord's Church? Well, yeah, the answer is yes. But as far as establishing your own, when you look at denominations, like all of the denominations, they were either started by a man or a woman. And in all of these cases, they're violating God's laws. They do not have the authority to start a church under their name, for instance. And so, of course, Jesus made it clear that there's only one church, and it's his church, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Now, when you look at these denominations, some will say, well, we started our church because of the corruption in other churches. So, for instance, you know, corruption in the Catholic Church led to the Protestant movement. Or if you look at, like, the religion of Islam and their establishment of the Quran and the Hadith because they say that the Bible was corrupted. Well, in both of these cases with the Catholic and Islam Church, what they're saying does not justify starting a new church especially whose practices conflict with the church that Jesus established that we read about in the New Testament. And so if you dig into a little bit deeper, and we do in that uh, series of podcasts that we had on the traditions of men versus the Word of God, you'll notice that you know this alleged corruption they see was either religious practices of like the Catholic Church that was corrupted, so it wasn't the Lord's Church that was corrupted in and of itself. It was that They had already corrupted the church, and they were practicing things far afield of what the Bible taught. Or when, you know, somebody asserts like Islam does that there's Bible corruption. Well, if you dig into that a little deeper, some of the accusations that they're making around the passages that were corrupted, they're taking out of context. So anyhow, I guess the point is, it's easy for some to justify why they're starting new churches. But when you dig a little deeper... There is no justification. So I'll wrap this up by just saying you could help to start a local congregation that's based on the pattern found in the New Testament, but this church wouldn't be theirs, right? It would be the Lord's church, and it's just simply a collection of Christians that are coming together to establish a local congregation to do the work in that community. Jeff? Yeah, good point. And, you know, there there are some, you know, famous uh, denominations that kind of trace their lineage back to a given person. You know, Mormonism, classic example, you know, Joseph Smith. Other denominations, you know, Mary Baker Eddy, Ellen G. White, etc. You know, back to a particular person that sort of started the church. That's it. All right, Jeff, the next question, should the church have Sunday school, quote-unquote, not like a Bible term, right, but should the church have Sunday school for children? Good question. Um, and I think the answer depends on, on what, you mean when you use that term, you know, Sunday school. You know, I did a little bit of research. Uh, Evidently, the concept started in the late 1700s as a means to teach, you know, reading literacy to poor and orphan children. Now, there's nothing in the scriptures that would give authority to a local congregation to spend its limited resources teaching secular education, reading, writing, arithmetic. So, you know, Bible, uh, you know, New Testament churches is is not there to to teach English, uh, to teach reading. 
But today, I, and of course, that was in the 1700s. Today, I suspect the term probably mainly refers to religious classes with children that's happening in parallel with classes for adults. Now, certainly the New Testament church has the authority you know, to provide religious teaching, you know, which is in some ways one of its main functions. And having age-appropriate or maturity-appropriate uh, groups separate uh, you know, certainly would be an expedient for, for doing that which would make it okay. Uh, Now, that said, I've heard of some abuses of the concept of quote-unquote Sunday school. Include things like providing food and fun and games and frolic and and all that kind of stuff, which definitely is not a work of the church. I guess it depends on what you mean by the concept, Brian. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd never heard about the history of that. I appreciate you researching that. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it was an interesting beginning, although it's kind of uh, evolved somewhat since then. So in terms of having Bible classes, sure. Uh, in terms of teaching, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic, no. Um, providing fun and frolic, uh, no. So again, it just kind of depends on what the practice is. Yeah, and I guess it's a good example of the end doesn't justify the means. While there's some benefit in teaching, reading, writing, arithmetic, it's just not the work of the church. Sure. Okay, next question, Brian, for you. Whose responsibility is it to select or appoint elders and deacons in the church? Yeah, it's really the responsibility of the local congregation. And I guess that probably wouldn't be shocking to some because who else would do it, right? I mean, there's no organization and, you know, they're not going to like cast lots and have it in some miraculous way chosen. So, yeah, responsibility of the local congregation as they must confirm that there are men who meet the qualifications outlined in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, Titus 1, 6 through 9 for elders, and then for deacons, 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 12. And so, the congregation has to make sure that there are qualified men, and that's the only way it can be done is by the congregation themselves. Now, as for the process of formally selecting elders and deacons, the Bible does not give us guidance there. And so often congregations will just use principles from God's word, and they'll have a process that may go something like, you know, the names of men who the members feel are qualified are put forth. And if each man, quote unquote, desires the position of an overseer, as it mentions in 1 Timothy 3, 1, we can also logically assume that a deacon should also desire. If they have no desire to serve, well, then that would disqualify them. But anyhow, you know, members will bring forth names. The congregation is asked to consider them based on the, the local churches, you know, the members of the local church's knowledge of that person. In other words, their conduct that they've observed over the years, their personal dealings with them, etc., they will then determine if they meet the qualifications outlined, once again, in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Now, if someone does not feel that a man meets one or more of the qualifications, often a congregation will, you know, ask them to specify why. And then there's, you know, often discussion around that. Some congregations, you know, would like unanimous consent before appointing someone, which I could see as wise, because if you have some who do not feel the person's qualified and they give specific reasons, and you go ahead and appoint them anyways, well, that could cause some division within the church. And so then ultimately, you know, the local church has to decide on the process that ensures only qualified men, you know, once again, more than one, as we've talked about, are appointed. And to get dig into this a little deeper, we have a really thorough study on the eldership that was written by our evangelist, Alan Hitchin, under the elder section on our website, biblequestions.org, and it's entitled The Eldership. So a lot of important considerations, Jeff, when it comes to appointing elders and deacons, and, and not something that a congregation should take lightly, right? Right. Now, I have heard of religious groups that have a, I'll say a hierarchy, you know, Catholic Church, 
famous example, which you know has departed from the, the concept of local autonomy. And I think there's some, I can't remember, there's some Protestant groups as well, where the pastor, if you will, is selected by the hierarchy. You know, it's selected by the governing council, the governing board, and basically the congregation gets who they get, right? Based on someone else having selected them. You know, that's certainly not a scriptural concept either. That I just thought I'd mention. Yeah, good to know about those practices. And you're right, compared to what God's word says. Speaking of God's word, Jeff, the next question is, you know, does the Bible authorize things like church buildings, audio systems, you know, water fountains in a building? Right. Now, for those, some people might say, well, you know, unless it is specifically mentioned in the Bible, you know, we're not to have anything to do with it. Um, to include, I mean, that's, you know, at a very basic level, we want to talk, do you want to talk electricity? You know, you want to talk internet? You want to talk indoor plumbing? You want to talk, no, no, and obviously that's an extreme position. Uh, so simply speaking, yes, the Bible does authorize these things as what some people refer to as expedients or as aids for carrying out the commands that have been given uh, to the local congregation. Like, classic example, you know, Christians are commanded to gather together on the Lord's Day to worship, observe the Lord's Supper, etc. Where they do that, again, as an expedient, a matter of judgment. It could be in someone's home, which some of those were mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, could be in a local, like a, what we would call a park. Could be in a large tent. Could be in a building you know, that's rented. Could be in a building that's owned, etc. Whatever is needed, along with you know, not only perhaps a building, but other things as well, to prudently carry out the, the command to assemble and worship. And I think, Brian, this is an important distinction. Uh, it illustrates the difference between sometimes what we call specific commands that exclude other ways of doing something, the difference between specific commands and general commands. Say, hey, go do this thing, and how you do it is left up to you. So there you go. There's a little micro lesson in Bible study and how to formulate good doctrine. Yeah, and you know, as you were going through this, I was thinking about like the temple and the tabernacle, and we see that when those were built, it was based largely on the donations of individual brethren, if you will, and they took those contributions and built what God asked them to build. And so when you think about the church uh, that we read about in the New Testament, it's the same thing. Based on the collection of the saints on the first day of the week, some of that money is spent to help carry out, as you mentioned, the work of the Lord. So there's a nice synergy, if you will, between the old and new law. All right, uh, question for you. Why does the church today meet on Sunday instead of the Sabbath as God commanded? Yeah, this one is also pretty straightforward. I mean, the day of worship changed when there was a change of covenant. So under the old law, you know, the Old Testament, our Bibles, we clearly see the day of worship was the Sabbath, according to Exodus 20, verse 8 and other passages. In fact, even Jesus, when he lived on this earth, was under that law prior to his death, and he observed the Sabbath. And we see an example of that referenced in Matthew chapter 12. Now, under the New Covenant, we see that Christians met on the first day of the week. So we talked earlier about Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, where it says, Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. So this is when they observed that Lord's Supper that we referenced in Matthew chapter 26. And then we also see in you know, 1 Corinthians 16 too, On the first day of the week... Let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. So going back to that, you know, basic principles 
of how to study and to establish authority for what we do. Well, those are two passages that clearly show us that Christians came together on the first day of the week. And of course, when Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled the old law, and that's why we no longer meet on the Sabbath. Jeff? Yeah, yeah, good point. And like you're saying, here again is another way of properly interpreting the Bible. You know, understanding the, the entire Bible is inspired, certainly, but there was, you know, old law, new law, a change in the law. And don't think that you're, you should be, or required to be, or you're allowed to be dragging stuff in the old law and practicing it in the new. You know, you mentioned priests. You know, that's an, that's an old law, Old Testament law of Moses concept for a you know, specific class of individuals. You know, terms like, as you said, tabernacle or altar or sanctuary uh, and many other things like, you know, incense, special robes, whatever the term might be, right? Uh, or the practice might be. You need to be careful that we don't mix the two laws. Which is very common in the religious world today, <laughs> anyhow. Uh, it is it is very common, and I think it basically shows a, a lack of ability to distinguish between the two laws. That's right, exactly. You know, another question, Jeff, for some that could be controversial is, you know, does the church have authority to conduct weddings and funerals at the church building? What would you say about that? Right. Well, and this is, honestly, this is a very common practice, you know, getting married in the church, right? In the church building, right? Um, simply speaking, the answer is no. The church does not have the authority. Since neither weddings nor funerals are, quote-unquote, religious functions, you know, given to the local congregation as something it is responsible for doing. Now, part of this you could view as a, as a financial sort of thing. Certainly, as you mentioned, first day of the week, lay, lay aside within the treasury, you know, that the work of the Lord can be done. You know, when they, uh, Christians give their money, you know, to the Lord uh, as part of the local congregation, local work there, you know, that money should be spent on doing things the church is authorized to do, you know, Colossians 3.17. Uh, you know, Brian, Earl, you mentioned five acts of worship. Uh, you mentioned, you know, preaching God's word along with edifying each other, etc. Uh, you know, meeting on the first day of the week, you know, all those uh, things are, you know, spiritual in nature. Uh, unfortunately, Brian, as we've observed, several you know, denominations have left that pattern. And now they've used the Lord's money to build the building. And now they use the building for all different kinds of stuff. Sometimes it's social, sometimes it's political, sometimes it's a polling place, a voting place, uh, etc. Used for a, a variety of unauthorized purposes to include you know, recreation and uh, entertainment, carnivals, uh, daycare, and by extension, you know, weddings and funerals. Now, Brian, arguably, you know, some people might say, well, yeah, but weddings are like connected to marriage. And marriage certainly is a scriptural topic, isn't it? And, you know, funerals, well, they're kind of connected to death. And certainly, you know, isn't that like a, you know, scriptural topic? And, and you know, can't we also preach God's word in connection with, you know, marriage or a funeral and, you know, reach people in the audience? Well, you know, there is kind of that connection. But basically, the Bible is silent, you know, regarding, you know, marriage ceremonies, funeral ceremonies, you know, how they should be conducted. Um, what they should consist of, what they should include, etc. Uh, and so, yeah, while the Bible does have things to say regarding marriage, death, 
the afterlife, you know, things like weddings and funerals, they're, they're more of like a civil, a social kind of uh, event. Certainly, since since the scriptures don't you know, indicate how they should be, uh, you know, celebrated. So, bottom line, Brian, you know, let's let's leave the you know the, the the civil, the social, the recreational stuff, you know, out of the local congregation. Let's have the congregation focused on what you know Jesus as its head wants it to focus on. Yeah, so true. Appreciate the answer, and you know, some might try to fit this under expedience that you were talking about, but there, when you have a wedding or funeral, you're not carrying out some act of worship, for instance. And some might say, well, we're just using the building. I mean, come on, we're not really using resources. Well, you're using electricity, right? And while that may only be pennies, you're still look using money that was contributed to the treasury to do something that's non-worship related. So anyhow, just some food for thought, as we might say. Yep, good points. All right, Brian, that leads us to our last question of the day. Can a local congregation exist without elders? Yeah, and I think we would have to conclude yes. I mean, the Bible doesn't specifically say, but let's just think about this, I guess we might say logically. we, As we've touched on, certainly when you think about a scripturally arranged church, God wants a church to have elders to oversee a congregation for the reasons we discussed earlier, and therefore every church should strive to have them. However, there has to be qualified men to be appointed as elders. So then you might ask, well, what should we do if we don't have anyone qualified? Well, we still have to remember the Lord's death on the first day of the week. We still have the responsibility to worship and practice, do the work that the church has, God has given to do. So if no one is qualified, well, then I think we can reasonably conclude that the church can and should still assemble to worship and do the Lord's work in their local community. In fact, uh, one passage I'll mention, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 20, Jesus said, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So, you know, that's certainly just talking about in general, right? And so, of course, you know, the goal would be to grow and mature as a church and reach a point where qualified men could be appointed as elders. So, Jeff, I kind of liken this to, you know, new congregations. We see this a lot, especially in foreign countries, where you have an entire church. They're all new converts. They were just all baptized. Well, it's not logical to think that anybody's qualified to be an elder at that point. So, once again, they still should be able to meet to do that work. And so the answer should be yes, as I see it in here. Yeah, and, and that seems you know, entirely reasonable. As you said, a local congregation, particularly newer ones, or sometimes in some cases, smaller congregations that only consist of a few men and they, you know don't meet the qualifications, et cetera. So there are some what we might call extenuating circumstances. Brian, any uh, global comments before we wrap things up for the day? Uh, just one final comment, and that is, as we mentioned at the beginning, we're going to have a part two where we're going to get into some deeper topics along the line of the church. So invite you back for that next episode. Cool. And like for most of our podcasts, we would certainly encourage our listeners to go to our website at biblequestions.org. In the topics section, some of the topics uh, related to today's podcast, you can look under A for attendance and authority. C, oh, lots under C, church, church buildings, church government, church the true, D for denominationalism, E for elders, F for fellowship, including the act of withdrawal we mentioned earlier, S for Sabbath in terms of day of worship, W for worship, and W for withdrawal. I might also mention that in addition to the topics section of our website, if you go to the podcast section of our website, 
you know, today we've mentioned several single and multi-part podcasts related to today's topics. You know, on that podcast page, there's it has its own little topical arrangement of the various podcasts. Authority, at least four episodes under that. Fellowship, traditions under the topic of denominationalism, you know, traditions of men versus the word of God. We mentioned Islam, so that's in there as well. Church government, uh, there's, there's a topical section there on the podcast page for the organization of the church as well. So lots of good material. We would encourage our listeners to go avail themselves of, dig into. Uh, certainly, more importantly, look up the associated scriptures, see if they make you know sense in terms of what the Bible is teaching, and then, of course, be able to uh, apply them to your particular situation and maybe examine your, your local uh, church, what it teaches, what it practices, to make sure it's consistent with what the Bible teaches. And if not, you know, have the courage to start looking for the true church. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website, biblequestions.org, where you can submit a Bible question to be answered. And you can also search archives where we have answered several hundred Bible questions over the years. Our website also has a host of free Bible study material, free correspondence courses, as well as sermons and a host of other material. Please stop by and check it out.